0: Okay. So tonight we are kind of wrapping up, not only the year, but we're wrapping up this sort of long walk through the book of Exodus that we've been going through, and tonight we kind of come to the, the end, and uh, you know, just as a side note, biblical movies are kind of like all the rage these days. Y'all, y'all have noticed the Son of God, Noah, and Jay Ford actually told me last week that um, The book of Exodus is going to be set to a movie soon, and it's true. I looked it up on IMDb, and uh, Ridley Scott, true enough, is making Exodus the movie, I guess, I don't know what it's called, coming to a theater near you in December. Check it out. Christian Bale plays Moses, so you've got Batman Moses, Um, Aaron Paul is going to be cast as uh, Joshua. Aaron Paul's Jesse from Breaking Bad. So, um, just a stellar lineup. You've got Jesse and Batman and uh, you know, Pharaoh. It's going to be amazing. So, but, I'm going to go ahead and do you a favor and spoil you, you know, save you a trip to the theater and just tell you how the thing ends right here tonight. And So, if you want to know how Exodus ends, you've come, you've come to the place. Here's how the book of Exodus ends. You ready? With a long elaborate, detailed account of the people of Israel building a tent. That's literally how the book of Exodus ends. The word tent, you know, the the Bible uses the word tabernacle, but tabernacle is just a big, portable tent. And so, really, I'm going to give you sort of a we're we're not going to go long tonight, but I'm going to give you a wide angle lens of kind of really what happens in the last half of Um, The book of Exodus, in chapters 25 through 31, you get long, elaborate instructions from God, hyper-specific, about how to build this big tent, the tabernacle. And in chapters 35 through the end, through verse 40, chapter 40 rather, you have the Israelites following all those instructions down to the T. So I I want to give you a little sample of what I'm talking about there. If you have your your hand out there, if you look in chapter 26, verse 1, let me just give you a little sample. Let me read it. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Okay, if you compare that with chapter 36, verse 8, it says, And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. Okay, look at chapter 26, verse 2. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits and the curtains shall be the same size. Compare that with chapter 36 verse 9. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain was 4 cubits. All the curtains were the same size. On and on and on like this it goes for chapters. Some of you are already asleep. You're so bored at this. So what's the point? Why is so much air time devoted to the construction of the tabernacle. I mean, to put this into uh, perspective, God spends more time describing the construction of the tabernacle than he does describing the creation of the world. So why is this so important? It seems to be kind of important. It's sort of the big end of Exodus. So what's the big deal about it? Okay, so here's the deal. Here's why this is important. The tabernacle is the key... To unlocking the meaning of life. There it is. And that's not just preacher hyperbole, although it kind of sounds like it. But but the tabernacle is the key to unlocking sort of the the, the meaning of life. It's not only the ultimate point of the book of Exodus, it's the ultimate point of human history. And so we're gonna jump in and look at it. We're not gonna look at all the ins and outs of the curtains and the All that stuff. We're going to look more at this one little story um, from Exodus chapter 33, just a little slice, which actually follows right after the golden calf incident. So let me read chapter 33, verse 1 through 17. We'll take a look at this and then we'll be done. It says this The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give you. Give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Then if you jump to verse 12, it says this. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, <coughs> excuse me, that this nation is your people. And he said... <coughs> Sorry, it is the allergies. And he said, "My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." And he said to him, "If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be made known? For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth?" And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. (coughs) For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Can someone please bring me a cup of water? (coughs) That's an honest request before I shred my throat. Thank you, Robbie. (coughs) This is an amazing way to end the semester. (laughs) As Robbie goes and retrieves um, the lozenge for my (laughs) larynx, let let me enter. Let let me jump into this passage this way. Uh, Okay, we'll start off this way. We'll we'll kind of we'll we'll ease into this passage this way. Thank you. We'll, We'll ease in a second. Give it up for Robbie. Thank you. I can just put this on the sound equipment, right? Okay, I'm going to start off this way. Thank you, that does help. Um, I'm going to start off with a little dating advice for my people that are dating. Uh, You know that perhaps you've been in this scenario before that um, the lady of the relationship is upset about something. Could be major, could be minor. And uh, when the guy encounters this um, scenario, when his lady friend's upset about something... Uh, he instinctively gears down into fix-it mode. You know what I mean by this? Where he just applies unbending logic to the situation and immediately comes up with solutions on how to fix the problem. And when he offers these solutions to the lady, how does the lady typically respond? (laughs) That doesn't help. I, I, I'm not interested. You know, it gets her more angry. It gets her more aggravated, more upset. It doesn't help the situation. And she says, you know, I'm not looking at you to fix the problem. And the guy says something like, then I don't understand why you're bringing up a problem. Like, what, I don't understand. Like, why? Why are we talking here? It's either that response. The guy's response is either fix it mode, or to roll your eyes. You know, lady friends upset about something, and the guy's like, wait. Wait, you're upset about that? Like That's the thing that's upsetting you right now? And kind of roll your eyes. And so guys, I think, instinctively have one of two reactions. Fix-it mode, roll your eyes. Both are bad. Both are bad responses. And so let me tell you what you should do. You ready for this? Here's what you should do. When she's upset about something, you just be with her. You just be with her. You listen, you don't roll your eyes, you don't fix it. You listen, you hurt with her, you ache with her, you enter into the moment with her. You, are, you be with her, that's what you do. Try it next time and then come back and thank me later. Now let me give you another example that's uh, a little heavier, but it's no less relevant. Um, what do you do when a friend is hurting or grieving? Uh, When someone has lost somebody or something has experienced something horrible, what do you do with that person? Because I I know of students that have avoided friends that are grieving, friends that are hurting on the grounds of, I just don't know what to say. And, you know, I think there are certain situations where there are no words to say. Where there's not just a magical formula, a magical sentence that if you can just string these words along correctly and deliver that, that will magically fix this person's life, it will put everything into perspective like in the movies, and it, it doesn't work. What you do in that situation is you go with your friend who's hurting, and you just be with them. You're just with them. Part, simply you being there with them is part of their healing process. Now the reason I'm, t- I'm talking about that is think about it like this. If, if a human coming to another human, just being with another human is redemptive and healing and restorative, how much more true would it be if God were to come and be with a human? How much more redemptive, how much more healing... It, it, so really, the, the, the reason I'm talking about this is because the whole point of the tabernacle, the whole deal behind it, was for them to build this tent as a dwelling place for God's presence to be with his people. In, in other words, the whole point of the tabernacle is for God to be with his people, for God to be with them. Now you say, well, isn't God everywhere? Yeah, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent, but the tabernacle was the place where God's immediate presence was dwelling in concentrated form. And so you, really, you can say this, the whole point of Exodus, the whole point of saving his people is not just to give them freedom, not just to get them to obey him. The whole point is so that he could be with them. And so really that's the one point I want to make tonight. The big idea that we're going to talk about tonight. This is it. And we'll do it briefly. Gosh, i got something in my eye. <laughs> Lo santo for the throat issues, the eye issues, the awkward issues. We should close the prayer and just call on that. But okay, we'll keep going. Um, that's the big idea that we're gonna talk about tonight is that the, the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the key to unlocking the meaning of life. It's what life is all about. And, and so, okay. So let's jump in here. And if you if you look back through it, um, last week, um, last week was the story about the golden calf where God you know, the, the people of Israel sinned against God and this story takes place right after it and if you look at verse uh, 2 uh, chapter three, in, in chapter 33 verse 2, God makes a very interesting proposal to Moses right after this whole situation in verse 2 he comes to Moses and he says look I'm going to send an angel ahead of you into the promised land and you're going to have military success there You will conquer all your enemies, and you will be able to inhabit the promised land. But, verse 3, he says, but I will not go with you. So think about this. Here's what's interesting. Here's what God is offering Moses. You can have peace from your enemies, prosperity, comfort, ease, success. You can have everything you ever wanted. I just won't go with you. I just won't be there. In other words, you can have everything that you ever wanted, all your dreams come true. You just won't get God. Now think about that. If that was the offer on the table for you, how would you respond? Especially for some of you who are graduating, graduating seniors, and moving on to the next step. What if God came to you and said, look, I can make all of your dreams come true. You can have the swanky job in New York. You can have the money and the budget to eat at the fancy cool restaurants. You can have the cool friends, uh, you can have the amazing spouse, and the perfect kids, and the awesome home, and the sweet ride, and the second house on the lake, you can have all of that, you just won't get me. Now how would you respond to that? Yeah, put it another way, if you were, if you could be fulfilled emotionally, sexually, financially, professionally, emotionally, and just not get God, would it be worth it? And I think if we're honest, that's a kind of hard question. So hang on to that thought, hang on to that question for just a second. Let me tell you a quick story. A true story that I heard from a friend of mine. She had a friend who was living in New York City uh, in one of those you know, crank-tight apartments. She was a, a photographer. And she also owned a big golden retriever. And uh, one day, sadly, the, the golden retriever passed away. And uh, it makes for a little bit of an awkward situation when you're in New York City and you have a big, huge, dead dog in your apartment because you can't just like go in the backyard and bury it. Like, what do you do with it? So she calls uh, her vet, and the vet says, okay, if you can, if you can bring it to the office, like we'll, dis- we'll take care of it. We'll dispose of the body or whatever. Which you know still makes it a little awkward because what do you do? You can't just like walk down the street with like this you know big carcass. And so what she does is because she's a photographer, she takes one of her big fancy equipment you know camera equipment, big bags, and unzips it and takes out all the expensive uh, camera stuff and puts in the dog and then zips it up and now it has this, kind of this big bag and she's like going down the elevator is now on the streets makes her way to the subway, sort of like lugging around this huge bag of this dead dog in it, and um, very graciously this kind man comes up to her and sees her struggling and kind of offers to help her, and so she's relieved, and so she kind of gives him this bag. The next thing she knows, he punches her in the face and runs off with the bag, (laughs) thinking it's expensive camera equipment. (laughs) Which is amazing for her, because that's kind of problem solved. <laughs> Not so amazing for him. But, but that's, okay, so think about that image. That's the image that I want you to have in your head. On the outside, this looks amazing, this looks valuable. This thing is stuffed to the brim, and it looks like it's really expensive and really good. But you unzip it, and what's inside but like a rotting carcass? And so when God makes this offer to Moses, and God comes to Moses and says, look, you can have everything you ever wanted, you just won't get me. Moses thinks about it, and he says, okay, on the surface, on the outside, that looks amazing. That looks uh, very valuable, that looks like the, you know, that would be an amazing life. But you know, in his mind, he unzips that sort of life and knows that inside it's empty. Inside, it, it's, it's actually just filled with death. This is why in verse 15 he protests God. If you look at verse 15, Moses says, look, if you won't go with us, there's no point in us going. There's no point in sending us. It would be worthless. You hear what he's saying? Look, if we have everything, all of our dreams come true, and we don't have you, what's the point? It's better to actually just die in the desert. Now, what's what's he putting his finger on? Here's what Moses is getting at. Moses is basically saying, look... Being with you is what life is about. Like this is this is being with God is the point of life. This is why you exist. By the way, this is why you're breathing right now. This is why you woke up this morning is so that you could be with Him and so that He could be with you. In other words, the presence of God, the tabernacle. This is what I mean. It's the point of life. It unlocks. This is what you were made for. So, this explains, by the way, why um, some of y'all have gone on mission trips, and you go to third world you know, countries, and um, you've been around Christians that are, uh, have nothing. They're living in sort of bad living conditions, and they're kind of eating nothing. And what do we, what do we always talk about? Is, is we're always struck by how happy they are. You know, we come back and we're so astounded by you know, these people have nothing. These Christians in this third world country have nothing, and yet they're happy. And then you compare that with us in America, we have everything. We are rich, we are well fed, we've got the money, we've got the cars, we've got the military, we've got the technology, we've got the uh, medical world, we've got the entertainment, and yet we are the most medicated the most obese, uh, the most uh, addicted, the most in-debt population of people in like the history of the world. But what does that tell you? That, that tells us that like, we're not happy. We have everything and, and our solution to that is we just need more. We just need more and it's not working. What, what does that, that, that tells you something. And that tells you the same thing that Moses is showing you. That you can have everything. And if you don't have God, your life will essentially be empty and meaningless and joyless, ultimately. And if you have God, you can be in a really challenging, hard spot in life. And you can walk through life with stability, security, and with joy. And so then here's the, here's the final question. Then, How do you get it? How do you get that immediate presence of God, because you can't just like take a flight over to the Middle East and like find the tabernacle somewhere, because the tabernacle gave way to the temple, which was essentially destroyed. So there is no temple. There's no way to access the immediate presence of God anymore, right? And even if the temple was still there, the only person who could go into the inner room where the immediate concentrated presence of God was, was the high priest and he only did it once a year. For everyone else, there was this huge curtain that was put up separating the immediate presence from God from everyone else. So if the meaning of life is found in the presence of God, how do you get it? Well, it's interesting then that centuries later, the word that was used to describe Jesus at his birth was Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word that means God with us. That God knew that the tabernacle and the temple was, was a temporary fix to a permanent problem. And so God himself came to be with us. And Jesus, living and breathing, embodied and fulfilled the entire ministry of the tabernacle. This is why the Bible makes it explicitly clear in John chapter 1. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Greek word there, dwelt, is tabernacled. It literally is making this direct connection. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, God himself took on human form and moved into our neighborhood. So it's very interesting then. And very puzzling then, at the end of Jesus' life, when he's breathing his last on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Think about that word forsaken. What's going on at the cross is that God the Father is withdrawing his presence from God the Son. And Jesus is up there abandoned, utterly alone, forsaken by God. You know, right as he breathes his last in Matthew 27, it says that that curtain separating God's presence from everyone else was torn top to bottom. Meaning that now the, the immediate access of God is available to everyone else. It's no longer confined to one building and one space and one spot on the earth. You put all that together, and what what's going on with that? Here's what's going on with that Jesus is taking your place. At the cross, he is being cast out of God's presence so that God's presence could be present with you. He is being forsaken by God on the cross so that God could be with you. The whole point of the tabernacle, the whole point of the temple is a huge foreshadowing to one who would come and make the presence of God available to all who would take it. And the way that you take it is you come to Jesus by faith. You throw yourself at him. You cast all your hopes and your dreams upon him. You say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the promise of the gospel is that God himself will take up residence in you. And then you yourself will become the tabernacle, a temple of God. But what did Jesus say right before he ascended into heaven? What did he say? Behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So, what do we do with all that? Well, before we, before we end the semester, before we end the year, before we kick the seniors out, uh, I, I want to make just two brief applications and then we'll be done. Two brief applications. Here's application number one seek his presence. Seek it. Earnestly seek his presence. Don't be content without it. Put as much energy and thought and strategy into being with him as you would anything else. And you can do this in two ways. You can do this personally and you can do this corporately. Personally, you have all the means of grace at your disposal. Prayer, scripture. This is why the psalmists. there's this echo throughout all the psalms. and Here's the echo that it says. It says, do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those that go down to the pit. Down to the pit. They're pleading with God, crying with God, stay close to me. I want to sense your presence. I want to be aware of your presence. Don't ever depart from me. You can do that personally. You can also do that corporately. You know, if it is true, if you're following the logic, if it is true that God dwells with his people, then one of the most primary ways that you can experience the presence of God is to plunge yourself into a living. Because that's where God says, I actually dwell in and amongst and through my people. So if you want to experience God, go to church. You know, if, if, if For you graduating seniors, you're leaving, you go to another place, go to another city. This really should be the top priority on your priority list. And, and I would say this to you, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, even if you don't care about any stuff I'm talking about, if you're remotely interested in what God is and who God is and what God is like, then the way that you're going to figure that out is by going to a church, by seeing God's people, by hearing the word open and communicated. So seek the presence of God corporately, personally. That's the first application. Seek his presence. Here's the second application. (coughs) Take wonder in the fact that he sought you. The way that you seek his presence is by taking wonder in the fact that he first sought you. The whole fact that the tabernacle is in here, the whole fact that Jesus ultimately came, is proof that God wants to be with you. Now I know so many of you just live your life in shame. And so many of you live your life in such a way that you intentionally try not to be noticed by people. You want to be invisible. You don't want to stand out. You don't want anyone to see you. And the reason that that is is because if someone saw you, if someone focused on you, if someone actually got to know you, they would come to the conclusion that you're not lovable. You're not worthy of their time. You're not worthy of their attention. And the tabernacle, the, the gospel looks at you and says, look, God wants to be with you. The king of the universe desires to just be with you. Not to boss you around, not to make you do stuff, but to be with you. So, so, you know, I figure the best way to end up the whole year would be to quote Edward Sharp in The Magnetic Zeros. You know the line? Home is whenever I'm with you. I almost botched the line right there at the end. (laughs) Home is whenever I'm with you. And I want you to think about that line, but I want you to think about that that's actually what God thinks and sings about when he thinks of you. And take wonder in the fact, put your name at the end of that sentence. You know? Imagine God looking at you and saying, home is whenever I'm with you, Jacob. Home is whenever I'm with you, Courtney. Home is whenever I'm with you, Luke. Put yourself at the end of that sentence. And take delight in the fact that he has sought you and pursued you through the person of his son. And that's amazing. And that's really good news to know. So it's in there. Let me pray. Father, help us to find joy and wonder and delight in the fact that you just want to be with us. That you so prize us and delight in us and like us enough to pursue us and to even to want to be so intimate with us that you would take up residence in us. Father, I pray for the folks that are leaving this room wherever their next steps are for the summer, for next year, That you would continue to pursue them and they would continue to find delight and wonder in the fact that you do. That you want to simply be with them. May that be good news to our hearts this night. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.